All right. Well, welcome to our first edition of 2020 Cinetopia podcast and radio show on EHFM. I am here. Well, we have some new people here, but I'm here with Jim Ross. Um, how are you doing, Jim? Good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How was um, how was your New Year's and Christmas and all? Uh, good. I spent most of it in snowbound Maine. Uh, it didn't actually snow, but being Maine in winter, there was snow everywhere <laughs> constantly, of course. I remember that from Vermont. It's pretty pretty cold up there. Yeah, well, I stayed here in rainy Edinburgh mostly. But um, anyway, so we have two new people, not new to Cinetopia at all, but new on our um, radio show. Uh, so, Carice Evans, um, how are you doing? Hi, Amanda. I'm good. How are you? Oh, very well. Uh, Carice, tell me a little bit about... Um, your involvement with um, the Short Film Festival and the Edinburgh International Film Festival. What what makes you love talking about film and all those good things? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I've had a quite a good last year. I've had an opportunity to work for the Glasgow Film Festival and Edinburgh International Film Festival again. And since I moved to Edinburgh a couple of years ago, I got involved with the Edinburgh Short Film Festival and I've stuck around uh, either helping out with logistics or programming with that since. Um, I programmed the festival single-handedly this year, I think, for the <laughs> first time, which was obviously done with a huge amount of help from all of our uh, festival screeners. Um, but yeah, it was a great addition. Um, I'm now working full-time for the Edinburgh International Film Festival for the time being. Um, and yeah, I mean, Edinburgh's a great city for film, great city for festivals, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing everything that the Edinburgh International Film Festival does this year with a new festival director at the helm. Yeah, no, that's going to be very, very exciting. Um, you and I both went <coughs> to that same uh, film program at the University of Edinburgh well, as well, so we have some connections there. Yeah, the um, film exhibition and curation course at Edinburgh University seems to be um, a pretty great starting ground for anyone who wants to get into film exhibition, filmmaking. Um, a lot of people have gone on to work in um, sort of gallery curation, uh, some people in, in uh, marketing and advertising in film. So it's a, a really quite an interesting course, bringing people from all across the world and all different disciplines. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, and our next um, contributor this month is Servina Scateni, who um, has done some work with us at Cinetopia particularly our doc screening and <coughs> Scalarama period in September. Serena, how are you? And uh, what brings you to Cinetopia's podcast? What What do you do in the film realm? So, hi, all. Hi, Amanda. <laughs> how are you doing? Very good. So, well, I mean, usually I'm like a freelancer for... So, uh, no, yeah, I mean, I'm freelancing like film journalism. So, basically, I'm writing reviews and like features. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just interested in films. So, uh I thought like jumping into podcast would be like a nice thing to do for the new year, <laughs> kind of a new year's resolution. So yeah, here I am talking about films with like nice guys. Yeah, and you've you've done some really amazing um, reviews for 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 big um, places like uh, the Skinny yeah, and Little White Lies, and so like, it's yeah, it's picking up the year for lens and stuff. So I've got like a, a nice opportunity last year of being like participating at the uh, at the BFI London Film Festival Critics Mentorship Program, and then after that, yeah, I basically wrote a thing for like Little White Lies, and then like for like Movie Notebook, and this kind of stuff. So yeah, as I said, it's picking up. So oh, looking up for more opportunities in this year. So yeah, we'll see. Well, we look forward to having you both um, on this. Uh, particular edition and in the future and uh, to give your impressions of the films that we're going to review. There's a lot of films we're going to review um, this month. Um, we're going to start with uh, Little Women um, and then we'll we'll follow up with uh, 1917. Um, sorry, Little Women was directed by Greta Garwig, uh, 1917 directed by Sam Mendes. 
um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Jim, can you tell me who's directed that? Mariel Heller. And so that's the third film. And um, finally, Uncut Gems. Josh and Benny Safdie. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for all your Wikipedia purposes. All of that, plus I'm sure we'll get a little awards discussion in there as well. All right, so we're back, and we are um, starting with the first film, Little Women, which is the latest adaptation of the Louise May Alcott famous uh, American novel that um, we've all seen in multiple different adaptations over the years. Uh, this time it was directed by Greta Gerwig, and you know we picked these films way before, um, w before all of the news that's been coming out, but um, I think you might have known um, that it was snubbed from the BAFTAs. It wasn't nominated, or Greta was not nominated um, for Best Director of the Golden Globes or BAFTAs. And um, we are pre-recording this, so I won't be able to tell you whether or not that's the case for the Oscars either. Um, but the film is a, a, is about um, four sisters during the time of the over their over like a seven-year period. It's, a, it's you know a really famous novel, and Joe is played by. Uh, Swarissa Ronan and Meg by Emma Watson. Florence Pugh plays Amy, and Eliza Scanlon plays Beth. Uh, Marmy is uh, as played by uh, Laura Dern, and then we have a lovely mom. Um, uh, I forgot her name, but Meryl Streep what, is the horrible aunt. Is the horrible aunt? Yes. <laughs> um, so I saw this last night. It actually took me a couple weeks to decide to do it. I, I really loved the 19, I grew up with the 1994 edition and of with Winona Ryder and whatnot. So the idea of doing another adaptation of Little Women wasn't something I was jumping to see, even though I'm massively uh, in love with Greta Gerwig's work. Um, and I was blown away. I think, I think I read some reviews that said this was near perfect. And to me, it was a near perfect film. Um, so I'm shocked that um, all the other films that have been getting all the, you know, the press and, and the nominations that Little Women didn't see itself at the at the forefront of, of these nominations. What do you guys think? So this is my first experience of the Little Women story. Um, I haven't I haven't read the book. Um, I only really have a vague awareness of it because, I mean, the, the book is more of an American thing anyway, but... You know, I've got only got really a vague awareness of the story. I haven't seen any of the other adaptations, like the the 1994 film or anything like that. I thought this was excellent. I thought it was a brilliant film. Um, I'm I'm going to disagree on the the near perfect. I thought it was a little bit choppy at the start. Uh, I found it a little bit hard to follow, maybe in the first 20 minutes or so, because so Greta, the, the way Greta Gerwig has done it, because of course she adapted it and wrote the the script here as well, is we've kind of got interweaving timelines of the the later period uh, when Saoirse Ronan's uh, Joe is coming back to Concord, Massachusetts to see Beth, her ill sister, and then their earlier scenes from childhood when they were all still at home. And I, I, I did find it a little bit hard to follow at the start. Even then, um, I think she's doing some interesting stuff. I've actually seen this twice, right? I saw it in early early December, and then I saw it again when I was in the States over, over Christmas because I went with some friends to see it. And even then, the part that I found quite hard to follow at the start, she's doing a lot of stuff to set up character interactions and our understanding of kind of the dynamics of these characters later on. So whilst it was a little bit hard to follow at first, she's still doing a lot of kind of necessary, interesting stuff there. After that, 
I thought it settled into kind of a, a beautiful storytelling rhythm, really. And, you know, I mean, it's not necessarily the most um, flashy way of delineating these timelines. Like, we've got different colour grading, we've got different kind of, like, colour palettes going on, but it means that you can then follow that story and you can follow those two timelines uh, really well, really easily. And I think that's why I'm kind of surprised she's not popped up in more of these, um, you know, awards director conversations, because I think it is a really well-directed film. I do. And to take that story and make that easy to follow, as I say, after an initial kind of rocky start for me, it then really makes it a easy story to connect with when they're linking back to experience in their life and the the performances are all excellent so i mean for me it ticked a lot of boxes and i really think it was superbly a superbly made film i think i'm like together with jim and like not having seen any adaptation before of this um novel and also i'm probably one of the uh, only women in the world who haven't read the novel itself so uh, i was really pretty new to the uh, to the story and everything although yeah of course i've got the like some back knowledge of that and that said i mean i was really really intrigued by the film and yeah i mean i agree i think like in the very beginning could have been a little bit confusing almost um mainly because i mean it started pretty much at the very end of the uh, of the novel itself so uh with people like uh knowing the story they might have been like oh but this is the ending so why is i here and we like people not knowing the story, it might have been what's happening. And then, yeah, at first, it's not even, it's not really clear when they're like, uh, we're um, back in time and then like in the present and stuff like that. But I think that when it gets like to the uh, to the middle section of the film and like to the uh, most like emotional and like gripping part of the film, it's just amazing how Gervik handles like this non-linear storyline and also like the core palettes as uh, Jim was mentioning, they're just really great. I mean, they are really helpful like for, maybe people don't really use like watching this kind of hard house films and following like a uh, different way of handling like storylines. So yeah, color palettes are really great for like basically uh, detecting and like understanding what was happening and when that thing was happening. So we call a lot of like um, cold, colors and it's kind of a shallow palette and then at the other side of the spectrum we've got this like beautiful autumny color and like an amazing photography so yeah i mean that really nailed it and also like performances wise the film was great and uh to be honest i'm not really a uh, surprised that the film goes not by like male critics i think mostly because i mean the story in the end like it's kind of the uh like female story, like the epitome of a like a female story. So I'm guessing that majority of male critics I didn't read that, and they're not just interested maybe in female directed films, so maybe not that much. So yeah, no surprise there for me, but maybe just me not being like very uh, hoping and hopeful for like people to get into films or like different kind of a uh, director. So that's me. But yeah, anyway, it was a great film. So I hope it gets like some satisfaction at the Oscars. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, you mentioned how it's been snubbed potentially on the grounds of uh, the fact that it's got a female director, and not only a female director, but a female writer, the same Greta Gerwig, and also a predominantly female cast. And I think your average male moviegoer and sadly your average male BAFTA voter or award voter looks at it and assumes that there's nothing in it for for them. Talking about the structure of the film as well in relation to that, the way Greta Gerwig kind of 
restructured the film and kind of changed Joe's story, um, that's one of the biggest kind of uh, criticisms that a lot of women have over the book is that Louise May Alcock kind of concedes um, and instead of having Joe go on to be this kind of single emancipated writer uh, that she maybe wanted her to be and that maybe lots of people craved for her to be, um, she settled and Joe settled and got married. Um, and I think there are lots of dualities between the character of Joe, Louise May Alcott, and now Greta Gerwig herself as a female auteur. She is reported to have not thought that this film um, was one that she would get a chance to direct. So she took the script to um, the studio and, and was really uh, kind of excited about the idea of the film getting made in this way that she had written it, this way that she had structured it. Um, but she believed that the project was going to get passed on to someone with greater experience, someone who could tell the story with more um, uh, more skill than she could. And I think that's such a, a marker of this imposter syndrome that so many female women, so many women have both in the arts and across the world is that they feel like they need to have done so much more than maybe the average man feels like he needs to do before he can come and sit in that director's chair CEO of that company, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, it would be great for Greta to see some some awards come out of this, but I think she can at least rest easy on the fact that it's been such an audience-celebrated um, film, and you know that in itself is such an important thing. Absolutely, and I, you know, I I went into a little research on how she looked at at this piece. And speaking of the structure that you were talking about, I did I did feel a little bit at the beginning. This is a different way. It's sort of expectations you have of, 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 you know, being an American who's read the book and who's seen all the adaptations and grew up with it. And it was a very, very important book for females growing up. Um, I think that uh, some of the things that you had with expectations, and I, uh, one example would be the Amy character, um, originally in 94, was by Kirsten Dunst, and she was quite bratty. And then even within the book, supposedly, she's she's a brat. But what I read is that Greta was really kind of finding like her voice and making her kind of a more well-rounded character. So at first, when I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, she doesn't have that sort of Kirsten Dunst like spunk or something like that. But then, ultimately... What, what happened was the way that Greta did so much research, I mean, and so much almost like dramaturgy, as if you will, like about a book and then turning it into a script that was having a dialogue with, as almost I think she said, her as, an, as a modern script writer and then Louise May Alcott and then these performers, I think is just really spectacular. And I think, Serena, you were mentioning the photography um, there were parts of that film that just blew me away, like particularly the beach scenes with, I was just very quite, like, like you said, like certain soft palettes, but then like this just beautiful, like sort of sun on, on, on the characters, just absolutely stunning, like more than many films I saw last year. So that would actually be my favorite film. If we, if I could re go back, go back and do our favorite films of last year, I wish I could have put that one on there. Yeah, that's the thing we did that that blog that blog post that we did for um, you know our favorite films of 2019. I think it would have been been in there for me. I, it's interesting the, the the fact that like men don't seem particularly interested in this film, and I I really can't put it down to anything more than the title. Quite frankly, I mean literally the fact that it's called Little Women because obviously there's a lot in in there, and the main kind of thrust of it is the the role of women in society and what's expected of them and you know i mean that's 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 fairly obvious from from watching the film that's a massive thread through it but it's not as if there's 
not things for you know people outside of that gender to relate to. And one thing that I found quite interesting with the whole, um, it was really the 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 kind of the the storyline that covers Joe, Laurie, and Amy, and you know Amy is the one who ends up going to Europe. And it was just all these little things that just knock your life in a different direction. You know, the little things that happened, which then set you on a path, which is really quite different to the one that you'd maybe maybe had imagined for yourself. And that one, that's one aspect of it that I feel is kind of universal. I think this idea of, you know, a fondness for the innocence of childhood that is a that is a common one. So I find it a little bit depressing that it doesn't maybe get a little bit more of a fair shake on that sort of basis. On the the Amy character, which we were talking about, I I it, I was absolutely wild to me when I went and read about the book afterwards that there's kind of like this anti Amy movement, like people like when people are doing the kind of the the discussion of like oh which March sister are you? Nobody seems to want to be Amy, absolutely no one, and I think credit really needs to go to Greta Gerwig's script and Florence Pugh's performance for making her a very relatable character, and w- when she's playing the younger scenes, where confusingly I think she's meant to be about 13 years old, but I actually think Florence, Florence Pugh does quite a good job with that. She is very relatable. I mean, yeah, she is a bit bratty. She's like, you know, she's maybe a little bit entitled and spoiled, but you can you can relate to it um, and what she wants out of, out of life and how her goals differ to that of Joe. And I think they've done a very good job of that, especially when I do see the reaction to the character in general. Uh, I was kind of surprised. So I think there's a certain amount of rehabilitation of characters that has gone on in the script, and I don't think anybody is particularly favoured. I don't think anyone's path, uh, you know, Joe, uh, Beth, Meg, any of the any of the characters, I don't think they're particularly favoured as like, oh, well, this is the more worthy thing to do. This is what you should be doing. And I think that's an important thing to present with those characters, and I think they've done an excellent job of doing that, and that belongs to both Gerwig's script and the performances of the actors. Yeah, and I also I, I saw this really funny sort of thing that I think it was um, somebody from Sex and the City uh, watched. I think it was Cynthia Nixon, and she was like, "It's us," you know. <laughs> there's this like funny way that there's this combination of you know this the storyline of four powerful women and four women sort of coming together, and 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 storylines that we see throughout throughout time that people respond to, and the way she filmed it has. That made me some sort of similarities to that, which I thought was quite funny that I, I there was that connection. But I would be remiss not to mention again what you said, Carice, about the 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 way that Greta plays in that story about Joe and and you know her relationship. So the way that she handles the fact that Joe ends up again previous stories or actually the book, the she ends up marrying an old professor and the who she ends up in this case, you know, the way I won't spoil too much, but, but it really does play with the idea of meta, you know, meta, meta-ness in a film and how a story was maybe expected to be told and at the time and how, what maybe she would have wanted it, it to be told, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, similarly to what Jim says, there are so many different narratives for each of the, the women in the film. And that is important that people aren't coming away from the film saying, okay, so Joe does, does not want to end up marrying a man. Um, but it's absolutely fine for, it's absolutely fine for Meg to get married. And that's, that's the really important message here is that there's not one thing that makes you a woman, one thing that makes you a feminist. It's just 
that choice, that option, that chance to make that decision completely freely out of your own will. Um, and and it's also interesting that we we talk about relatability in terms of bringing in the audience. And I completely agree with you, Jim. There are so many things there that that people who um, don't identify as as female can come to this film, and they can they can find messages in it that they can relate to, and they can find stories in it that they they see themselves and, and their friends and family. And but also, does it need to be relatable to bring men in for? decades for a century a century women have been going to see films that don't have them in it they don't have a strong representative um female character or any female characters in but you go and watch it because it's what's there and it's you know it's entertaining it's it's whatever and obviously there are films that are more problematic and there are films that we can still as women go see with i mean we're about to talk about 1917 there's not a single female character in that just just one one female character thanks um and and that i don't think has fallen to the same kind of issues that little women have where male voters just haven't shown up to the to the the, um the bafta screenings um and i think that's quite interesting as a kind of point that we're at in, in this time yeah i mean i totally have to agree with chris there it's just it's totally beyond me that like in 2020 we're still here debating if a film like with a manly female cast should be should have something in it for like men to force them to go and watch a film i mean i'm like is it just so hard to understand it like we're just human beings and we're just sharing like the same emotions and everything so it's nothing that's nothing like with gender defining like our emotions or the way we live our lives so it just i mean it's just crazy and like kind of a not very progressive thinking maybe but yeah i don't know and also like speaking about gender I've read some interesting things about like um the character of Jor of Job being like kind of our coded in like queer things and like uh and uh, I mean I think that could be like a reading of the film and I mean I wasn't really bothered in the end by the fact that she could be getting married with a man because I mean in the end I mean it's her life she a very independent character she is like uh, she has a progressive mind. She's really open-minded. She knows what she wants to do with her life, and it's, she's really like, yeah, leading her life. So uh, I'm not, the, I mean, I mean, I'm not one of those women who thinks like you shouldn't be. The, I mean, she's not defined by a man, uh, and if she decides that she's, if she decides to just get married with a man, that's perfectly fine. And I, I think it's like it's interesting to see like. The two storylines of like Joe and Mac together, especially like regarding the uh, how they see marriage. Marriage is quite an important part of like in all the film. We go like different ways of like um, dealing with the idea of like getting married with a man and maybe not being able to just uh, thrive in the artistic scene. So everything is really, is really taken for uh, cared for like in the uh, in the script. So, uh, yeah, what I was trying to say is that, I mean, whatever the reading and the, uh, the characters, I really love, like, how Jo was played and also, like, the fact that she was kind of gender non-conforming in terms of, like, dresses and also, like, costumes and the, uh, what she was thinking, what she said in the film. So it's just a, such a modern adaptation of the novel. And, yeah, I mean, it was just great. 
Yeah, I think all the things that we're saying about the film, I think mainly if you if we were going to summarize them, I think the thing to get across is this is not a staid, stuffy period adaptation of a 19th century novel. I mean, obviously, it's an adaptation of a 19th century novel, but there's a lot of modern ideas woven in here. There's a very modern approach taken to it, and it is very interesting. There's a lot going on. I mean, it's a very good story, and it's very easy, in my opinion, to follow, and, you know, it's very involving, but there is also a lot of very good ideas going on, both on the surface and under the hood, if you peer a little bit a little bit closer. So there's a lot to recommend it. Well, and I think that as a complete, um, in honor of that novel, that 19th century novel being very modern, being very feminist, being a wonderful, wonderful piece that people want to relook at in different ways over and over and over time. And of course, to Greta Gerwig, who did, I think we all agree, an exceptional job that should be, at least if it's not in this round of nominations, it will over time be very, very well appreciated, appreciated. And we hope you go see it. And on to uh, our next film, which has done actually quite well um, in the nominations and uh, awards so far. Uh, 1917 by Sam Mendes, um, directed by Sam Mendes. Jim, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of what this film's all about? So as the title of the film kind of gives away, it's set during the First World War. And basically we are following two British soldiers stationed in France who are given a task at the start of the film. Uh, And it turns out that... Basically, the Germans have retreated from the front lines and an assault is being planned by uh, British forces elsewhere. And the forces that are going to be launching that assault include the brother of one of the uh, soldiers that we follow, which is Lance Corporal Blake, played by Dean Charles Chapman, who is probably better known to folk as Tom and Baratheon, or at least I think it is. I haven't actually bothered to look this up, but he certainly looks like him. Um, and the other one is Lance Corporal Schofield, played by George Mackay, who is chosen by Blake to to go with him. And basically, the the shtick for the film, right, is that it's a, a single take. Now, it's not actually a single take. I think the longest individual take is about nine minutes, I've read, and then it's kind of got special effects wizardry to stitch it together. But basically, we follow them crossing no man's land, going out into the countryside, encountering you know other soldiers, opposition forces, and basically the trials that they need to overcome in order to deliver this message from their commanding officer to the other commanding uh, officer. And it deals a lot with the the horrors of war and the things that were encountered and, you know, kind of maybe some of the politics within British forces at the time, maybe even today. And basically, that's that's the thing. We follow them on that journey as a kind of an, an uninterrupted journey, effectively. Uh, so, yeah, directed by Sam Mendes, who's, you know, done quite well in terms of box office lately, did a couple of Bond films and so forth. The cinematographer is Roger Deakins, of course. Uh, so you can imagine the film looks very good. But I suppose we've all seen it here, um, so I'm curious as to what you thought about it, because obviously it's a very big technical undertaking, and it's a very sort of like impactful story in time. So what did you make of it? Well, I have to admit that I saw it right after Little Women and um, was bawling my eyes out of happiness with Little Women. So I was also not 
incredibly excited to see this film um, if, um, because I knew it was going to be depressing. Uh, one thing I have to say is this idea of the gimmick film of the one take. I really am ready for that whole idea to be over. Was it Birdman that started it? I think Orson Welles was quite fond of the long take, but the idea that this film has to be one take and that's why it's getting all this buzz is, is annoying to me. Um, and so I watched the film through that lens of being like, there's another one, there's another one. And <laughs> that frustrated me a bit. But having said that, I was able to get immersed in the story and I think I didn't expect, um, so the positives of, of it is that I didn't expect to, to feel, it almost felt like a tense horror film to me in, the, in, in a bit. And so it was, It there were many times in the the in the theater that I kind of gasped, you know? And so I quite enjoyed that take on a war film versus others that I've seen in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think the supposed one take is never going to not be a gimmick. I do have an issue with films that end up playing upon this sort of one idea. It's this one story that pops up in the news. Um, it's the one thing that sort of gets it that initial media attention. And to a certain extent, I think it sort of ends up undervaluing everything else that's maybe going on in the film. I think the that being said, the one take for this film uh, does make sense to a certain extent because of that kind of relentlessness of war and this long journey that they're going on and that sort of inability to ever just take a break. Like you can't just turn off and stop paying attention in war. And I think it, it, it shows that through uh, some of the things that happen in the film that if you, if you turn away your attention, you forget where you are, you forget what context you're in, um, you can maybe end up making um, quite a wrong footing. Um, I, I appreciated the film, I enjoyed it, I found it entertaining. Um, I must say I did have quite a laugh at the number of times where George McKay's character would maybe arrive um, at a new um, uh, regiment, um, encounter a new group of people, and there seemed to be this trope continuing of every time he went to find the person he was looking for, they would have their back to him, they would turn around, and they would be some in incredible member of like male British actor glitterati. Like we were sitting there thinking, like, who else can come up? Like, is Charles Dance gonna appear? Like, where's Hugh Grant? And we decided there were a lot of people that were probably <laughs> off in uh, in head offices and, and and not necessarily on the battlefield. But I mean, literally, you can make a drinking game out of it. Like everyone is in it. Um, and I think they probably had a lot of fun making it as, as, as bleak as the final result is on film. I think some of those swooping shots as they kind of go through the, the trenches um, and uh, pick, pick their way through the battlefield are probably um, a lot of fun for Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins to shoot. Um, and also a shout out to uh, Christy Wilson-Kens, who was one of the, who co-wrote wrote the film with Sam Mendes, who is a uh, Glasgow-born uh, female writer who I think we should be keeping our eyes on. I think she's co-writing Edgar Wright's new film with him. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely keep an eye on her for when she gets to write a film by herself. So, well, I've actually seen the, uh, the film just yesterday and I have to say I was pretty taken by the film and also all this idea of like the, uh, the one take, which to me is not really a one take, maybe like a couple of takes, but anyway, that, that's not debating on that. And uh, I mean, first of all, I usually don't read anything about a film before going to watch that, so I pretty much didn't know anything about this film. Uh, 
on top of being like a film set in the uh, World War, the First World War, just because it's like 1917. So, um, I mean, as I said, I was really, really engrossed by the way it's like shot. And um, I think that like the, uh, the one take thing, really interesting and uh, quite a great way of like dealing with like what you can experience like in war, as Carice was saying. And also it added like to the... Uh, a kind of a sense of suspense to uh, to the scenes and then the idea of like not knowing what could have happened like just a second later because I mean the uh, the field of vision for like the viewers is like not really wide so you can't see what's happening like in the uh, in the background or like uh, in a field like a half meter from the other uh, characters so uh, that was really intriguing but then when I went home just like logged on Twitter, on Twitter and then had a look at like, what people were starting to say about the film and uh, I found this tweet and it was like, finally a movie that accurately represents World War I as a smooth and continuous experience of exciting thrills and action. And well, I mean, first, I mean, World War I wasn't really thrill and action. It was like a stale war, basically everyone was like in the trenches, not moving and pretty much dying of like of agony and like not an accurate representation maybe of like what yeah, the first world war was. But then at the same time it was really great to see that like on a screen. So uh, yeah, I'm kind of, now I'm debating with myself, should I, should I have liked this film or not? What should be like my take on this film so uh, I don't know I'm just doubting myself but at first I was really I was really enjoying that and I thought it was a great film so I think the the technical details the the, the whole first off I'm glad that Serena said that we're not going to debate whether it was a, a single take or not because I'm not willing to debate it it was not a single take it appears as two takes but that doesn't make for as good marketing but you know let's let's, let's move on um but that aside, I, I do think it was quite well done in that respect, and it was really impressive. And I agree with Chris in that it makes it, it does to me make thematic sense. It's a continuous journey. It's very unrelenting in that sense. It's a very tense film. Uh, it's quite stressful in that way, and I think that puts you into that situation quite well with that technique. So wh whilst it is a bit of a gimmick, I do think it works very well here. And it also allows a different way of kind of like setting up your understanding of spaces and scenes. Um, you know, so the film opens with uh, on the two of them having a nap, I think, and basically it tracks them you know, the the camera's moving backwards and they're moving forward through a field through their company. And it's kind of it's kind of beautifully done how like little details come into the frame. You start to see the, the rest of their company around them and then you start to move into kind of a darker space where they're then given their mission by their uh, commanding officer. And that respect is very well done. It is very meticulously thought out and I think it adds to the way you engage with the film. Where my problem with it comes in, maybe in the minority in this room on, on that, but we'll see, is whilst I found technically the storytelling very good and it involved me in kind of the physical action that was going on, I really didn't get a sense of any character on screen. Um, it felt a little bit to me like when you combine that technique of trying to make it appear continuous with them moving through different spaces and kind of encountering different people along the way and some wild, wild coincidences, which are, you know, I mean, they make for nice symbolism, but I mean, it, it does, to me, take me out of the, the film a little bit. 
it, it, I'm not gonna lie. It did. It felt a little bit like a video game to me at points. It has that same kind of like continued. It, like it's got. The, I don't know if anybody here has ever played any of these like open world computer games, but it felt like that sort of thing where you're going through a landscape and then you'll encounter a non-player character and there'll be a little thing that happens and then you move on whilst you're trying to do a, a bigger mission. But there's like these little side missions, and in that respect, it didn't. That it actually kind of over time, it took me out of the film. Like the continuous take, it started off excellently and really kind of informed the way that they were building spaces. But after a while, it didn't really, it didn't really add to anything. I will say the film looks incredible. Um, like I've been, like I'm a fan of Roger Deakins anyway, and it's kind of like his trademark now seems to be fires in the dark. Right or like orange light, like Blade Runner twenty forty nine had that Skyfall, like that seems that seems to be his thing at the moment. But it looks incredible, and there's one scene in particular which I think is in the trailer where George Mackay's running around in kind of like a, you know a set of abandoned buildings. There's a fire raging, there's flares going off. It looks incredible. The main thing for me is the characters of Blake and Schofield. I never really got a feel for them. You know why? Why do they have? I, it almost felt like the reason that you needed to have. Um, Blake's brother, a part of the company that they're going to, is because there's not really m much woven in about why they would be so motivated to do this. And there is a little bit of a hint to the basically the shit show that was World War One in terms of organization and like motivation of the forces for this for this conflict. And it feels like basically the only reason they made it his brother is because that's what would motivate him to do it. So it, it kind of introduces to me character motivation, not issues, but an absence of them. Uh, beyond, like, you don't really get much of a sense of what these characters want beyond survival. Now, maybe that is thematically consistent with the way it's shot, but it does mean that over time, I think you start to be slightly less involved in the characters because once you've settled into the storytelling rhythm that is set up by this continuous take, stuff starts to to fade a little bit. It's only when you get towards the end and there's a very spectacular set piece that involves a company going over the top where that then kind of like pulled me back into the film. So it's a case of it does it does constantly pull you back in, but the reason it needs to do that is because it it does for for me anyway it did slowly lose me over stretches before it then wrenched me back into it see for me the idea of world war one has always been that it's so confusing and was always something that like art responded to in the sense that it was absolutely heart-wrenching and confusing and kind of the and 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 almost unexplainable and and in some way i i disagree with you in the sense that i i felt for those characters a lot actually at the beginning and i and i felt the motivation to be in a in an environment where you don't know you don't know why you're doing it you're just being told to do something and to go through these trenches and I felt I felt with the way it was shot as you said with Roger D I thought it was really stunning in that way because I really did feel for these people who probably had no particular motivation and then when they were in the German bunkers they were realizing those people probably had very similar sort of things and just by the fact that like accidentally some plane comes by and stabs him you know that's that's kind of war you know and I, I i gathered that in the sense that like it's just it's by accident whether or not you survive or you don't you but, know? but that's that's almost kind of what my issue was with it it, it has these moments it, it, it has these moments where you know there'll be a little sign in a trench or there'll be you know something with some detail which then maybe speaks to a slightly 
they maybe speaks to a slightly deeper analysis of this than war is horrible, right? But because of the way the film is telling its story, you have no time to linger on these things. It's right, right, okay, on to the next thing. We need to get them to, you know, we need to get them to the cherry orchard, right? We need to get them to the farmhouse, right? right? We need to get... It's, in, in a way, it doesn't give itself an opportunity to deal with these things. And I think by putting in these these little details in there, it does want to do that, but it doesn't quite get the room to breathe. And I understood, I, I did feel for the characters, more what I'm getting at is you don't really get any sense of uh, an inner self. And there are basically a moment for each of those main characters, Blake and Schofield, where you get a, more of a sense of them as people. So there's one moment with... Um, Blake, and then there's another one kind of like a little bit later on. Actually, Schofield gets a couple, I would say. But they're so few and far between because we don't get the opportunity to really sit with those characters all that that long. Um, like, the, ca- the the camera goes in for a close-up, but it's, it's, it's barely there for that long because before you know it, we're pulling back to a medium shot, shot and we're on the move again. So... To me, it, it's, it's a difficult one because I find myself very split on this film. I do think there's a lot to recommend it, but it's just I didn't I didn't get as emotionally involved with it as I feel the film wanted me to. Actually, I kind of disagree on that point because um, I actually felt like I was like connected with the characters, and um, I mean I, I got the uh, I don't get the whole idea of a war to begin with, but I kind of uh, got the idea of like having to do something because you were ordered to do something and then you're trying to find like the motivation to do that and in that case for Blake was like to save his brother which is like perfectly fine in that kind of environment you wanting to find like a kind of um, a bigger reason or like yeah just a motivation to do that because you just don't you don't want to die for no reason or for a war you maybe you're not even interested in to begin with so I found that really really gripping and like uh, you can connect with that it's a feeling we all share kind of even though we're not in that situation. And the old idea of like having these kind of quests, I think, I mean, it's, um, it was like in the, uh, in the mission itself. I mean, it's obviously you're, basically the only thing that gets you going is like adrenaline. So you're trying to do something, you basically running out of time, you're running against time. So obviously it's like, you're kind of uh, splitting your journey into a series of like little quests. And yes, it's a video game in the end, okay? We know that. But then, I mean, just you have to do something as a first step and then there's another step. And obviously, it's end up being like a sequence of like quests and stuff to get to the, uh, to the end game, which is like saving your brother, saving like all the battalion and everything. And um, just to uh, go back just a tiny bit on the, uh, the one shot thing. At first, I was really sold, and I thought it was like just a, a thing for like setting up the scene. And I thought, oh my god, that's great, that's amazing, because you were kind of uh, introducing the setting and like slittering in the trenches, and that was amazing. And then you get to the uh, to the first general, and then you've got for just a brief second, it's like a um, a subjective shot, and then it turns like into like objective shot. It was just great, and I was like, oh amazing just some um, amazing way to start a film and then when i figured out that oh my god that's the film just one or two shots i was like mm, that's a tiny bit of a bravado here i mean that's a man like directing the film so uh who good at noon <laughs> i mean yeah amazing and diana was like 
as I said, like really enjoying the film, but maybe in hindsight, I should maybe change my mind on something. But anyway, I felt like really connected on an emotional level. So yeah. Uh, I actually the, the the single take thing, right? I think that just the, the, I I need to say that that to me, Serena's nailed it there because I actually think that, like we talk about kind of like creativity coming out of restrictions, right? I actually think that Sam Mendes has ended up doing the opposite here, right? Because that the long take was a very good way of setting up the the space, the characters, introducing us to the world, and I think it it really did work beautifully there. But I actually think that basically he is then later in the film and this maybe speaks to why i didn't engage with the characters as much i actually think he's ended up restricting the visual language that he can use there a little bit that's to me it does seem like that technical gimmick and we'll, we'll call it a gimmick because i mean as the film goes on i do think it is has restricted the way that he can tell the story visually after that and i think that could be the reason why i didn't engage with it as deeply as i maybe could or should have i think it is a gimmick and i and then while we've been talking kind of had to look back at why i remembered the long take is such a big thing and it started one one film i remember it from was atonement and he had that one famous really long take that was beautiful that kind of showed the horror of war happening in france i feel like i'm watching the same that's my problem i'm watching the same i'm watching this dunkirk and i'm watching which is a which is a video game in its own way it's just structured differently and then i'm watching this film which is a journey you know like a, a journey and it's a video game over and over and over again and it's good it's enjoyable people seem to enjoy it in the audience i enjoyed it i had i had a thrill ride but is it is it amazing i don't know so knowing that it just picked up the bafta for best drama film do they categorize by yeah yeah so um best drama film of uh the last year um oscar predictions do we think that it stands a chance to win win the big award well, I don't know. I actually bring that. That's a really good point to bring up because I thought it was interesting watching the Golden Globes. I stayed up all night. I was shocked that Netflix got completely snubbed for everything. I really thought the Irishman was going to because honestly, I haven't seen the Irishman in its full. But the way that Jim and and Luca were talking about it being so incredibly amazing, I was shocked. So I was expecting 1917 had to be quite good. Well, yeah, but Joker, like, you know, Luca was also in love with Joker, so I'm going to say you should take everything that Luca or I said with a pinch of salt, perhaps. I mean, I think of the films that are currently being um, placed in the Big Picture Award from uh, predictions, so... That's the likes of 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joker, and Parasite are currently the big names out there. I've actually regrettably not seen Parasite yet. I'm really looking forward to it. I hear lots of good things. I think it would be incredible if it did sweep up the Best Picture Award from what I've heard, but I think it's unlikely. I think the second a film finds itself in the, um, is it non-English language they're calling the the category now they've changed it recently um the second a film finds itself in that category as well i think people just defer they say well i'll vote for it in that category i don't need to vote for it in the big picture category which is unfortunate um but i think of the the of 1917 once upon a time in hollywood and joker i personally would want to put my vote behind joker i think although all three of those <laughs> films are fairly um kind of seen it before male narrative sorry to keep man bashing jim um joker at least is something that tries to bring a little bit of a little bit of something else you know i i think it, it handles the topic of mental health um really interestingly i think it handles the topic of budget cuts to uh, health uh provisions which is obviously a 
issue that's going to increasingly face um, the UK over the next couple of years. Um, and to be honest, I think after the year of films we've had, it's kind of depressing that 1917, once upon a time in Hollywood, I mean, come on, <laughs> um, and Joker, the, the films that are, are being put up there. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it would be nice if Little Women would get something in there. Absolutely. I agree. I think by the time we get to the Oscars, Little Women probably will. Um, also, I'm pleased that as we continue to do more shows into 2020, we continue to have somebody flying the flag for Joker just to sort of like, you know, test my test my patience about how much I want to like go on about that. Have you heard that Joker 2 is getting ever increasingly more likely? I mean, the, the minute it crossed a billion dollars, it became a certainty. Um, <laughs> One that I will go view along with everybody. I, honestly, that film, that film just annoys me so much. But I, I'm a little bit. I feel like we've kind of bizarrely for a, for a year where we've got quite a lot of like interesting films, and I, I have seen Parasite, and I think it's excellent. Um, of the kind of like the big candidates kicking around, I would probably give it to Parasite or The Irishman, but put this way, if Parasite won it, I think that would be an excellent, excellent choice. I find it a little bit depressing how many films that were awarded, particularly at the um, the Golden Globes, you know, which, which splits its best picture category, how many of them are kind of like typical things you'd expect. So 1917 won, we've discussed 1917, you know, it's a very good film, but I mean, it's also... It's another one of these kind of like classic awards friendly films. It's a war film. It's got a technical gimmick that kind of like, you know, film filmmakers will kind of go, oh my God, that was, you know, incredible. There's that. And then the other winner in the other category was, it was that famous musical or comedy, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that comedy where people get their heads stamped on, you know, <laughs> hilarious. Um, and, you know, we discussed that in the show. I wasn't sold on that at all. Um, so, but I it's don't, the, it, You didn't like that film then? No, that, well, right. I, 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 I liked bits of it, but it, it felt... I have a very weird relationship with Tarantino's films and that some I think are brilliant and others I think are very self-indulgent and overlong and yeah. people kind of go nuts over it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for me, was in that latter category. Mm-hmm. Um but it's another film it's another film about films in hollywood i mean we've done this before i mean this happened when this is this happened when we made when everybody went nuts during award season over the artist which or the player or la la land well exactly this is my point like, it's just that this keeps happening again and, like a lot of these films aren't i mean the artist i'm sorry that, like not that i want to open up that this probably you oh know. you do you want to yeah okay i do i do right <laughs> the artist is not a good film i do not like it right it it's a gimmick is a silent film it doesn't use the same language as silent films and it's got the same plot as anchorman right go look at it watch both films back to back it has the plot of anchorman once a year we have to give jim the <laughs> artist conversation yeah yeah otherwise i'll just combust so like in terms of in terms of predicting like what will what will win i don't know i mean i've got my choices but i think it's going to default to that i guarantee for instance that best original screenplay will go to once upon a time in hollywood that is absolutely going to happen because i don't think tarantino will get director i don't think it will get best picture so he'll get that that because you know it needs something isn't he getting away with doing a 14th film by doing like kill bill 3 or is that a joke or something like that so he said he was going to retire after (laughs) 10 films right but he's counting... Ten perfect films, his words. <laughs> oh, seriously? Christ. Well, it, it used to be ten films, but he was getting away with this by counting Kill Bill as one film. Yeah. Well, I need to pay for two tickets, Quentin, so <laughs> it's two films. Like, I've had enough of this nonsense. But I thought I heard he was going to do another sequel or something like that too, so he gets away with it again. It's in pre-production, or at least it's listed on IMDb. 
interestingly, Jim, I noticed this week that you were tweeting about um, Alma Hariel's proposition that they should maybe split the directing category as her, her proposition. Maybe they she considers that they should take it further into to other categories. And you were sort of asking people to give their two cents on this. And also, I guess, uh, questioning why it was only really the acting categories that had historically had this split and i think when these categories were established there weren't female directors there weren't female producers of note there weren't especially ones that were being positioned as the director potentially there's there's you know co-directors and, and other people behind the scenes um but act, the acting category is the only one that they um historically have accepted women have a right to be in because someone's got to play women and we, we can't carry on with the Shakespeare thing of, of men pay, playing women forever. Um, but I think the, the acting categories are, are definitely um, going to be quite um, interesting this year. There's so many incredible um, performances uh, in you know big ensemble pieces. You've got um, Charlize Theron and Nicole Kidman and Margot Robbie and Bombshell. It's an opportunity for Margot Robbie to actually have a character, which she doesn't have in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's just um, one of Tarantino's <laughs> composite fetishes, <laughs> if that even makes sense. Someone to take her shoes off uh, and, and wiggle her tootsies around. Um, uh, but having watched Bombshell, I think she she's incredible in that. Um, she actually, funnily enough, is a composite character in that. So she sort of is the representative of all the um, young generation of women who maybe fell victim to Roger Ailes's um, uh, sexual assaults and sexual advances. Um, and then you've, of course, got all the incredible uh, performances in Little Women. You've got all the incredible men in, in The Irishman. You've got Pesci, who I think it was quite sad that he he lost out to Brad Pitt at the Golden Globes but I think that's potentially um the Netflix label dragging him down although I must say if I'm going to give Once Upon a Time in Hollywood any credit it's Brad Pitt he made me laugh um I could play that scene over and over again where he gets pulled off on a stretcher away we go <laughs> um but uh yeah I think the acting categories they've got a lot of um really brilliant names and interestingly a lot of names of people who could be nominated for multiple different films this year. Yeah, I think um, the uh, Joaquin Phoenix is probably most likely to win. But incredible performances across across all, all of these films, and and um, you know, I was excited to see Laura Dern win um, for Marriage Story because she was my favorite part of that film for sure. And I had a lot of discussions over uh, whether Scarlett Johansson was actually a good like good actor performance for for some friends who have seen it since then that's an interesting take but i'm yeah no i'm very much looking forward to to seeing and unlike jim and serena i do really we'll we'll talk about it next month but i do really like i do like a, an an oscar um I, I like the oscars a lot so and i do think they're relevant just because they're some way for us to fight and talk about it. I know, I was more circumspect because the last time we did this, it was my first show and I was being accommodating and reining in my cynicism. No longer, no longer. <laughs> so by now you'll you'll know the nominations and of the Oscars and uh, we can continue the conversation next month. Uh, 
Um, yeah, so A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is about the... Um, uh, so it's a biopic. It's a true story of uh, friendship between Fred Rogers, um, a fairly well-known American uh, children's TV show presenter. He's someone that, if you mention his name to anyone in Britain, they tend to not have any idea who you're talking about. But I think the impression I get is that he's um, quite uh, celebrated across the generations in America. Um, the story looks at a friendship between Fred Rogers um, and journalist Tom Junnard, who was writing for Esquire um, and got tasked with writing um, a piece on Fred Rogers. Uh, he appears as Lloyd Vogel in the film, uh, played by Matthew Rhys, um, and Fred Rogers is played by Tom Hanks. It's a fairly simple story. It's, um, it's a, a, a cynical journalist um, being placed uh, in front of possibly one of the most impossibly positive, good, true, honest people that has maybe, well, what this earth perhaps, but certainly um, uh, been a part of um, entertainment. Um, but Mariel Heller, the director, um, takes what is quite a, a simple story, quite a simple format of the biopic. And I think she really just, um, she creates an incredible film out of it. She uses, the, the the format of the TV show. She uses some of the kind of childlike animations and graphics and stuff that there would have been in this TV show, and she weaves that into the into the uh, film, um, and it it makes it more fun to watch. It makes it more interesting and exciting to watch than some of your more traditional biopic format films. Um, Tom Hanks is incredible. I don't think there's anyone else that could play Fred Rogers. He he possesses the same essence that I feel like Fred Rogers does. He seems like someone who would hold the door open for you, someone that would pick something up off the floor if you drop it. Uh, he's he's a, someone who feels like, he feels like he's not being tarnished by the sort of uh, ego and cynicism that can maybe uh, uh, reach you in, in, in American entertainment. Um, and yeah, the, I've seen the, the, the documentary that came out about Fred Rogers at the end of last year. That was called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, and both uh, the documentary and the film, you, you, you sit there and you think, surely not. Like, sh surely this person can't exist. Um, something that, that, give it another couple of minutes and we're going to hit that point where the, the bad news comes out, the, the news story the, um, that's kind of prevailed across a lot of um, British children uh, entertainers. Um, but it doesn't. He's great. And he says incredible things like, I don't eat anything that has a mother and your heart just melts. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd like to know what you guys think of it. Um, well, ultimately, I pretty much agree with you. I mean, I also did grow up with Mr. Rogers, and um, it wasn't. I really wish I had seen the documentary because I think I would quite enjoy it. And I think it was one of the top-grossing documentaries of like 2018. Um, I really, really liked um, the direction of this this uh, film, and um, I think I wrote in the la in our our blog of <clears throat> that Mariel Heller's like "Can You Ever Forgive Me" was one of my favorite films of, of last year as well. The only thing is I would I would say is because I had no expectation of what the story was, I think there was a little bit of time really focused on the journalist and his his life. And while I know that's an important part of 
um, of, of the film and the story, I think I, it was weighted a lot more on that way. And sometimes I wanted to see more of the Tom Hanks special, like, you know, story of that because I, I was really loving that part. So that's the only little bit of criticism I would have. So the funny thing is the um, the weighting of it towards the journalists played by Matthew Reese is actually really what I liked about it. Now, maybe this comes from the fact that I hadn't seen the documentary. Um, I'd hoped to watch it before we reviewed the film, but basically my knowledge of Fred Rogers is zero. I mean, basically it's a name that pops up in American pop culture for me before I went to see this film. And to somebody who, like me, who can be a bit of a hard-bitten cynic when I want to be, this kind of looks like this sort of like gooey, syrupy film that I maybe would grow a bit tired of. It's not that film. I really do think it's excellent. And part of that is because what I find interesting about it as a biopic is it doesn't do that thing of chronicling things from someone's life and what it effect it had on their state of mind and you know it doesn't it doesn't do that and i think for somebody like fred rogers as i now understand him it takes a very intelligent approach and it shows his impact on other people because i think what's interesting about fred rogers is the degree of reverence with which he is treated um certainly by people I know in real life, but also the characters in the film. So by showing the impact he has on Matthew Reese's character, who has had a, who's had a difficult relationship with his father, he has unresolved issues there. Like As the film starts, he basically gets into an altercation with his father at his sister's wedding. And then the way that he goes on to process that and then seeing what effect that has on children um, and what fred rogers and fred rogers show means to them to me actually works out as a more interesting more impactful way of telling that story the kind of the value of kindness the value of being able to talk about emotions and it really really hit home for me um the the elements for like the connective bits that are done in the style of kind of like the miniatures at first, it didn't really work for me, to be honest, but I think what that gives, again, is very intelligently done, because I think what that does is that gives that warm sort of nostalgia for Mr. Rogers' neighbourhood that the story itself isn't actually, right? Because it focuses on the journalist and his interactions and the, the, the impact that Fred Rogers has, you're not getting that kind of nostalgic element that people love from the sort of film from that. But you do get it from these kind of like, you know, these little kind of like stylistic elements that, that give that. So I actually think that's quite well placed and it gives you or it gives people who are familiar with that show from their childhood. It maybe gives them that little thing to latch on to with a, a bit of fondness in addition to the story. I really thought it was I really thought it was excellent. I thought Tom Hanks, accord, like as Curry said, is is excellent and kind of is perfectly suited for that role. I think Matthew Reese, uh, who's done a lot of excellent television work with the Americans, but I think he, he gets a very good role here. I think Mariel Heller also handles New York very well. It's a period piece. I mean, Mandel will be able to speak to that better than I do, but in the same way that she did with um, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which was another excellent film, I think this whole thing just comes together excellently, and the key thing is you don't really need to know anything about Fred Rogers in order to get something out of this film. Yeah, but I think what you exactly said, hearkening back, I mean, without those moments, 
And if it was just a story about this journalist um, and you're not hearkening back to the like that warm feeling that that show gives, particularly an American who watched it for so many years, um, it's sad that it didn't actually come over. It's probably one of our best public uh, television shows ever, you know, um, but but it certainly there was a mood created in that film. Um, and I do believe that Heller does that really well, and she does that really well um, for New York, and I think it was also Pittsburgh as well. Um, so really, really well done. So A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood comes out on the 31st of January across the UK. Check it out. So the final film we're going to be reviewing is Uncut Gems. It will be out on a short run um, in UK theaters, and then on the 31st will be on Netflix. Jim, tell us a little bit about this film. So Uncut Gems uh, is directed by the Safdie brothers, uh, Josh and Ben. Uh, they've done several films before. I think the the one that's probably best known, and the only other one I've actually seen of theirs, is uh, Good Time, which starred Robert Pattinson and made quite a... A splash a couple of years ago in kind of you know art house circles i think and basically the setup for the film is um adam sandler is a jewelry store owner in diamond district in new york he has acquired a black opal which is you know it's not been cut it's not been polished it's the kind of the raw the raw gemstone if you like and we're introduced at the start of the film to this and kind of it being mined in ethiopia in very trying circumstances and it very quickly transitions to Adam Sandler in New York and basically it's it follows him trying to get this uh, gem auctioned basically he has paid quite a lot of money for it he's under the impression he can get over a million dollars for it at auction and basically it's this spiraling set of circumstances not too unlike their last last film where he lends this to a basketball player Kevin Garnett who seems to think it imbues him with like you know mystical powers and allows him to play better so he keeps it overnight needless to say this doesn't really go according to plan and Howard who gets increasingly more frantic to try and get this back and also has a bit of a gambling issue and is known to pawn uh, clients uh, collateral at pawn shops we see him doing that very early on and basically, it's just how this situation continues to be just ahead of him and him constantly trying to keep up with that situation. Um, and then various other characters coming around it. Obviously, you've got Kevin Garnett, the basketball player. He's got a uh, a mistress. He's kind of semi-estranged from his wife, who's played by Adina Menzel. But apart from that, it's all kind of... There are quite a lot of first-time actors in here. His mistress is played by uh, Julia Fox. And there are other characters that come in and out of the story. I think maybe a recurring one is Lakeith Stanfield, who people would know from uh, Get Out, Sorry to Bother You, and things like that. So what did you make of it? Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, this film should come with an anxiety warning. I was about, I think it was about 10, 15 minutes in, and I genuinely considered turning it off because my heart was racing so fast. And I was home alone, and I was like, hey, if something happens to me, like... But I'm so glad I stuck with it. I, I, I should note that that 10, 15 minutes in, it wasn't that I wasn't liking it. It was that my body was having a physiological reaction to it. Um, but I'm so glad I stuck with it. I, I genuinely think this is one of my favorite films of the last year. It is, I mean, talking about like 
feats of filmmaking, the pace that they managed to keep up in this film, like it does not pause for more than a second for, is it two hours 10? Obviously Adam Sandler's the um, kind of the, the, the rock in the middle of this film. Um, and 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 that's a big thing. The the Safety brothers, um, I understand, have had this this film kind of sitting on their desk for about ten years now, um, and they always saw it as Adam Sandler was always that character, and they basically weren't going to make it until they convinced Adam Sandler to play that role. And I think they approached him probably about ten years ago when they first kind of had the idea, and and, and they themselves say quite fairly he brush them off they were not well known then um but uh i think it's 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 brilliant that they've they've stuck around and waited for him to to come along and, and play the character because i just love watching him like i am not an adam sandler film fan um and by adam sandler film everyone knows what i mean i mean the adam sandler films um but you know i enjoyed punch drunk love i enjoyed that film that he did with um don Cheadle a little while ago the the rain over me um, and I really do actually enjoy seeing him playing an interesting character. Um, and the Safety brothers said that they they sort of took a lot of inspiration from Paul Thomas Anderson's um, uh, desire to sort of build punch drunk love around what he believed Adam Sandler was and what he believed Adam Sandler could convey. And they kind of did a similar thing. They they wanted to create this character that was in some ways completely hopeless but also com so convinced by himself and his mission um you you kind of pity him but you root for him uh you also kind of hate him a bit you're shouting at the screen for him to make different decisions um and yeah you know you talk about these these moments where he's pawning other people's belongings and i think they did some really clever decisions with the structure there where there are some things where you're like, okay, I understand what's going on. Like I know what belongs to him, what doesn't belong to him. And then something that you realize that he's sold off or pawned maybe a couple of scenes ago, someone comes and up to him on the street and is like, hey man, where's my watch or, or whatever it is. And you realize quite how tangled this web he's in is. And he he has no desire to get out of it. Like that is, that is a character with a gambling addiction that is a character with with all sorts of things going on in their head that they they don't want it to slow down they don't want it to stop and it's such a a rich film in its design as well you know they create this uh his sort of his home life so his his family but also his extended family uh, medina manzel plays his his estranged wife and they go and they spend uh time at, at her family's and there's all these women and they're loud and they're trying on dresses and they're screaming and all the men are sitting and smoking cigars and and it, it's 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 not a world that you necessarily want to go and spend much time in yourself but you it's it's well created it's rich it's it's um um, it's really believable, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I loved it. It's funny you mentioned the thing about um, people being loud in the family home because it, it, this is an incredibly anxious film, right? It is really quite an anxiety-inducing. One of the things that struck me about this film is, and, and I think it is actually one of the things that er in the early stages actually really sets this anxious tone straight away, is quite how many people are talking over one another. Like, in, in the jewellery store, it's, like, it's very unusual for... A film to to do that or at least to foreground that you know like people talking over each other is a common thing but it's usually like background noise to a scene and the conversations and dialogue are very well structured and the opening scenes of uncut gems that is not the case it is utter chaos and it it's it's all very it's all very kind of like trivial there's nothing terribly dramatic happening at that precise point but it puts you right into the correct kind of like state of mind for this film straight away 
And then after that, everything... It's one of these films where I think everything combines to just create this atmosphere that we've spoken about. The music, I think, is part of that as well. And that's very similar to... I think it's the same um, the same person, Daniel Lopatin. Lopatin? My pronunciation's terrible. But it's the same person who collaborated with the Safties to do the score for Good Time, which this does share quite a lot of similarities with. But what's interesting about it is, to me, it feels like a far less kinetic film there's a lot of stuff going good time which kind of centers on a bank robbery go, gone wrong where you know robert pattinson sprinting about the place and the camera follows him and it, it's still got that kind of like you know jittery handheld quality to it in in certain places but it's a far more speedy film what's interesting about uncut gems is it maintains a momentum it maintains a jitteriness and an anxiety whilst being, in a way, quite deliberate. I mean, it, it doesn't follow Sandler at great bit. I mean, there are tracking shots where they track him down a street and, as you say, like people coming up and saying, you know, hi, Howard, how are you doing, and all that. But it's all very deliberate, and it's kind of just this constant building of tension. And then it just it gets you to a level very quickly, and then it holds it for the entire film as the whole thing just spirals around him. And it, all the decisions really play into that i think i i actually i'm not really sure anybody other than adam sandler could really play this role um because it needs that it needs that frustration with this guy because he does like some he does some really idiotic things he does some things which are obviously a, a symptom of addiction as well and all these things are going on but he still and i think this is down to sandler it still retains that kind of like core likability that means you empathize with him right as frustrated as you are you are still with this character right he doesn't lose you any, or certainly he didn't lose me at any point so it's one of these films i think as a strange alchemy where all these things come together to create an atmosphere in the mood that just has you hooked the entire time and i haven't been as anxious in a film since lynn ramsey you were never really here completely different type of film but that was one where i felt like i did that i felt like i was having an anxiety attack for two hours solid it's not quite up there but it is one of these films where you will find it hard to shake off immediately afterwards because you're just going to feel so tense and on edge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if anyone's looking for a present for me in the next uh, year, then I would love a diamante-encrusted Furby to hang around <laughs> my neck, possibly one of the um, greatest little props that the, the film has. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's the... Going back to the sort of like physiological effect that this film had on me, there's a, there's a moment maybe about... So beginning of the final third where Adam Sandler's character is faced with yet another decision of which way he goes. Um, and I felt like I was almost suspended for just like a couple of seconds as you wait. You're like, this is it. It's, it's If he just makes the right decision here, he's going to be out of it. It's all, and then you just like, you drop down and, and, and he, you know, obviously makes, makes the wrong decision once again. Okay, so as Amanda said, um, it's out on January 31st on Netflix, so everybody will be able to watch it then. Um, it is getting a short run in cinemas as this goes out. It should be screening at the Filmhouse, I believe, for at least another couple of days. So if you get a chance to see it on a big screen, as ever, as I tend to end up saying on the show, I think it's worth it. But if not, then anybody could watch it on Netflix, and I would highly recommend it. And last time I checked, their previous film, Good Time, was also on Netflix. So if you like Uncut Gems, I'd encourage you to check that out afterwards as well.
All right. Well, that wraps us up for our reviews this month. Um, just a, a note that in on the 29th of January, we will be running our first networking night, Cinetopia Industry, Film Industry Networking Night on the 29th. That's from 7 to 10 at the lovely Brewdog Lothian. We'll also be running a new film pub quiz um, with our um, collaborators, um, Lily Sandlin and Ali Murray, and some some other people who will be emceeing it. It's all it's all supposed to be fun. It's free, and I highly recommend um, you bring your friends and uh, test your film knowledge. I think it'll be another fun way to play with um, film discussion in Edinburgh. Uh, Jim, what's up for you in the next uh, month? Uh, so a few things. I think the the biggest thing for me personally will probably end up being well. Actually, it's a little bit more than a month. We'll probably talk about it in the next show. It's probably going to be Glasgow Film Festival, but there's a lot going on. Um, I'm trying to secure a few screeners for Sundance Film Festival, which is going to start shortly. Um, so see what that what there is there. Uh, no doubt we're going to have a couple of people, and I'm going to know more people who are going to Berlin. So that's going on. So really, just keeping an eye on what comes out of there and seeing what people are interested in press buying those festivals that are coming up yeah i haven't bought my tickets to berlin yet but i'm i'm definitely considering it um it was so much fun the last couple of years serena what are you looking forward to in the next month well in pretty much a couple of days i'll be going to rotterdam to the film festival oh, so it'll be like my first time there i'm pretty excited because they have this amazing program like featuring east asian films so yeah i'm really excited and then yeah, i'm planning on going to the berlinale as well like in february and then there's the glasgow film festival so there's a lot of things coming up like in the next few months so um yeah great, great. well we look forward to hearing all about it when when you get back yeah totally thanks and Carice. Yeah, just a shout out that the Edinburgh Short Film Festival submissions are now open. Uh, 2020 is the festival's 10 year anniversary. So we're going to have lots of special events celebrating that. The program, I think, is going to be almost about twice the length as it was the previous couple of years. Wow. Um, but there's still plenty of space for um, films through submissions. So please, if you've got a short that you want to submit, then send it to us. Any hints of what 10 years is going to look like and 10 years of Edinburgh Short Film Festival? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, when the festival first started, uh, even though it was just 10 years ago, we were taking submissions through DVDs <laughs> um, and maybe floppy disks, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Yeah, we're kind of looking to do something that sort of harks back to that time, but also celebrates where we're at now. Um, logistically speaking, it's a lot easier to be taking submissions through Film Freeway. Um, there's also a lot of archive material that we've got from um, presenters over the last couple of years, um, footage of parties and events during the festival. So we're looking to kind of pull that together um, and also maybe getting some special messages in from filmmakers that we've screened in the past as well as films that they've been up to since. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, it's been a wonderful month of films and um, I'm sure that next month will be even more exciting. We'll be talking a lot about festivals, but we'll, um, we might also throw in a little Oscar conversation as well because I'm looking forward to debating with Jim on that. Um, please follow us if you have questions or queries. Please follow us at, at Cenotopia Hub at Instagram or at Cenotopia on Twitter and CenotopiaHub.com. You can find out about all of our events. Thanks again and see you next month.